Many Americans are surprised not only that by the fact that the nation is involved in the trafficking of unborn body parts of children, but that the government is actually using your hard-earned tax money to pay for it. What can be described as nothing other than a fetal organ trafficking ring between the government, institutions, agencies, uh, your tax money, and abortion clinics across the U.S. is no surprise. It's a matter of public record. So find out how $70 million of your tax money this year at least is going to be used to paying for the organs of viable pain-capable children. Learn how the organs of these children are harvested, who is behind this horrible practice, and the public records to prove it all on this week's episode of Unaborted. My name is not Seth Gruber. My name is AJ Hurley. I have the privilege of filling in today for uh, my friend Seth, who's out on vacation with his family, and I am going to be talking to you today about fetal organ harvesting. You may have seen me before. I've been on Seth's program a few times. I'm the director, national director of Survivors of the Abortion Holocaust, and Seth is a dear friend of mine and uh, just totally thankful that he uh, trusted me enough to be able to come in and fill his shoes, some pretty big f- shoes to fill as uh, my good friend Seth is is an amazing pro-life advocate and a hero of mine. So when we talk about uh, fetal organ harvesting, fetal organ trafficking, this is a pretty crazy, pretty gnarly subject. And, um, you know, most people kind of put this subject in the conspiracy theory type of a category in their brains automatically somewhere, I don't know, between like the grassy knoll and Bigfoot. (laughs) Um, However, it is not. And I will prove that to you. Uh, Fetal organ trafficking and harvesting of pain-capable viable children is a real thing in this country. And by the end of this episode, it's my prayer that I will be able to prove to you not only that this is happening, but uh, provide you with all the public records to prove it. So if I've done my job this episode, you should have uh, realized and seen with your own eyes the research contracts of the government that admit it and spell everything out, our government agencies that fund this type of practice. Uh, The uh, documents that uh, FOIA documents, the Freedom of Information uh, Request documents that uh, pro-life organizations like Survivors and uh, Pro-Life San Francisco and uh, many others have gone through great lengths to expose and get a hold of, uh, you will have seen the abortionists um, and tissue procurement providers admit undercover and under oath uh, to everything that we're going to be describing. So you could share this episode. You can uh, share it with your friends and kind of catalog it as as something. Go back and listen to it, and we should be able to provide all of the links and everything. But you should see from your own eyes the very screenshots and linked citations to the journal articles from PubMed, all published uh, studies that we're – Uh, We're going to be putting out there, and it should be no surprise. But before we get into 
uh, fetal tissue research and exposing it, I first have to define it. So what is fetal tissue research? I don't want to tell you myself. I want to go to the horse's mouth, so to speak. So I'm going to let the government define it for us and then work off their definition. So the NIH, if you don't know what the NIH is, it's a branch of uh, the, the U.S. government. Uh, according to Wikipedia, the NIH is a primary agency of the U.S. government responsible for biomedical and public health research. It was founded in the late 1800s. It is now a part of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. So the federal government is in control of the type of funded uh, research that we do, uh, and the NIH is over that branch of the government. And the NIH defines fetal research as such. If you could pull that first screen up there. Fetal tissue involves cells from dead fetuses that are harvested. That's an important word. That doesn't come from me. That comes from the actual government. Uh, they are harvested for the purposes of establishing cell lines or for use for tra transplantation material and other purposes. Get this. There are two sources of such fetal tissue, elective or induced abortions or spontaneous or natural abortions. So this isn't coming from me. This is coming from your own government the published studies that are telling you elective or induced abortions. That's women who are going to kill their babies electively. These are not fetal um, abnormality cases or, or uh, some of them are, but majority of that, you're not going to, you're actually going to see that in the, the research that specifically stating that they are free from uh, fetal abnormalities. These are not uh, ones from miscarriages or natural abortions. These are elective or induced abortions from medical providers. So in order to simplify this definition for our purposes today, I am going to give you my own definition that me and a few friends came up with. Fetal tissue research is the use of cells, tissues, or organs from the bodies of human babies, in the Latin fetuses, uh, used for scientific research. Data re acquired from such research is used to find cures or treatments for illnesses, diseases, or the development of vaccines. So real quick, a lot of people, when they talk about fetal tissue research, they're thinking about stem cells. That's part of this, but that's not this. We're actually talking about body parts. We're talking about eyes. We're talking about livers, thymuses, reproductive organs of these babies, for heaven's sake, um, in the most horrifying type of stuff that I, I believe that our government has ever been involved with, and it is all being paid for by your tax dollars. Who's involved? How does this work? Give me the ABCs. What's going on? So I created a graph. If you can pull that graph up, Eric. So this is a graph to kind of give you the ABCs, the nuts and bolts of how this is happening. I've termed this graph the unholy trinity, and you can see why. So you, the taxpayer, top top uh, center, are this gov this uh, year. The government is providing from anywhere from seventy to eighty-seven million is the estimation of how much of your taxpayer money is going to be um, 
allocated towards fetal organ trafficking and research for these research contracts. These research facilities, like down on the right, Harvard, Stanford, UCSF, Yale, there's over 19 of them, University of Pittsburgh, New Mexico, University of Washington. These research facilities uh, apply for research contracts and then the NIH supplies them with the money for these contracts. And then these research facilities end up going over and funneling that cash to companies uh, like Planned Parenthood, companies like Family Planning Associates, who are involved in supplying the organs and body parts of the children that they abort for the research contracts of government institutions. So these research contracts and research facilities, sometimes, like UCSF, they will use their own uh, abortion clinics, like UCSF has the uh, Women's Options Center up on 6G. If you know anything about me, you'll know a little bit about that based on some of the stuff that I've done there. And um, they will acquire their own organs just through their, instead of paying a middleman like ABR that you're seeing, or instead of paying uh, Planned Parenthood, they, they will actually acquire their own organs for their research uh, studies. However, sometimes they will use a middleman like we're seeing in the bottom uh, center, uh, fetal procurement businesses like ABR, Advanced Bioscience Resources. You'll see some uh, of the information that I we have been able to expose and acquire from ABR a little later, STEM Express, Novagenics, Da Vinci Biosciences. These two have, have been recently closed within the last few years because of the work of David Delighton exposing them and actually shutting them down through getting out this expose. If you don't know who David Delighton is, this man happens to be, I have the pleasure of being friends with this man, but he is a total hero. He went undercover and exposed through undercover videos. He, he posed as one of these fetal tissue procurement officers. Uh, he, he created a fictitious uh, company and basically started acquiring the org, like contracts for companies like ABR, I'm sorry, companies like uh, Planned Parenthood and, and Family Planning, he tried to buy these organs from these children and uh, of these places for of these children and uh, basically tried to get, get all these people. He admitted, got these people to admit under uh, undercover videos exactly what they're doing and how they're doing it. This has happened in 2015. And as a result as you can imagine, big government and the big um, abortion in the government uh, did a, a total cover-up of this, uh, tried to just deny, deny, lie about everything that happened. And the only person that was uh, prosecuted was David Delighton and now is fighting for his freedom as his criminal trials begin to uh, be underway in the next, uh, next few months here. So fetal taxpayer funded trafficking. I'm going to show you how over 70 million estimated money this year 
is uh, going to be provided with uh, taxpayer funded for the NIH. Pull that graphic up. I took this off the NIH this is, website. This is a screenshot from the NIH. And as you can see on the very, very bottom, human fetal tissue, you can literally simply type in uh, under all the contracts that they have listed, type in fetal tissue, human fetal tissue, and it will tell you exactly how much of your taxpayer money will be spent on the organs of babies in the womb. So this year, an estimated 70 million. This is an estimate based, based on how much uh, they are perceiving this year will cost. Uh, next year is around the same, but back in uh, 2018 was a, high, a heyday for uh, baby organ slaughter and $115 million of your taxpayer money went to uh, the organs of uh, little children. So notice, I just wanted to notice, leave this up on the screen. This is case in point. This is a perfect example of hypocrisy, right? So when it comes to the separation of church and state, you can't legislate morality unless they need the money for babies for their botched Nazi-like experiments. Then your own religious... Liberty of conscience is just totally out the window, right? So they have no problem legislating morality at the government as long as it's not the Christian morality. At that point, there is no separation between church and state. There's no separation between the moral convictions that you have and the public policy that they want to institute. When it comes to paying for the dismembering, dismemberment of organs of living children from the wombs of their mothers, which should be, by the way, the safest place in the world for a, a, ch a child, for an unborn baby, the place of your wound. And, and the greatest evidence of this is that when you're scared, what do you crawl up into the fetal position? Because innately, we know that the womb is the safest place and should be, for heaven's sake, the safest place in the world for a child but I'm, I hate to say when it comes to the sacrament of the radical left, they have zero qualms, zero, zero qualms with taking the blood sweat of your hard earned, the product of your hard earned labor and using every aspect of your money to pay for this. So it's, if it's graphs like this that show one thing, if it's not hypocrisy, graphs like this show one thing and one thing over. Um, that is, you can look at this graph. This graph says religion externalized. Politics is religious externalized. I'm going to get off my soapbox here for a second. But when you look at this, this is the NIH and the federal government telling you, bow down, pay homage, and give us your tithe money for the sacrament of the blood of what we value in our religion, in society, the blood of children. So... Sorry, I'm going to take a quick breather after that one. It's not just, however, though, the, the public aspect of this that's funding it. It's also privately funded by some of 
your nation's heroes of the left, people like Warren Buffett, people like Jeff Bezos. Uh, pull up some of these, uh, if you could. So this is Warren Buffett giving millions, uh, $52 million to the late-term late training uh, capital of the world, this Ryan Residency Training Program. If you want to learn late-term abortion and how to train and uh, butcher babies in second and third trimesters, you're most likely, if you're any repute going to the Ryan residency um, and learning how to harvest the baby's uh, organs of these children. Second of all, Bill and Melinda Gates, the uh, Melinda Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. You can pull up the next slide. They uh, unashamedly have given. Oh, sorry. There's Jeff Bezos. Yep, Jeff Bezos, two hundred seventy-five million dollars to Planned Parenthood, um, and uh, he is heroed by by women everywhere as, uh, you know, female empowerment by doing that. You can go to the next slide. So here is a press release from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation vowing to give, what is that, $2.1 billion over five years to advancement of women's economic empowerment. And among those listening uh, listed as family planning. The next slide should show you how much they're giving to family planning. $1.4 billion. Yes, that's B with the B billion dollars over the next five years for uh, family planning, which is a cute little euphemism for uh, dismembering children in the womb. So I want to pay attention to Bill and Melinda Gates because they are not only funding this type of stuff, they're actually kind of the godfathers of funding the type of research that modalities that actually make fetal organ trafficking, harvesting possible. And I'll get into that. So um, if you could go to the next slide, you will see this is a slide listing several people up on the top there, these humanized mice that they've created, a guy named Richard Flavel. There's a few other guys on the far left. There's uh, George Yankopoulos and uh, Marcus Manns. George Yankopoulos, um, let's get into him a little bit. He's worked with uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, uh, but actually, let's talk about first about the guy on the right, uh, Richard Flavel. So you can pull up the next slide, I believe. Um, so here is um, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation listing it through their Grand Challenges and Global Health Initiative as being um, the financial backing for this. Go to the next slide. They've given over um, 17. This is uh, one of the men uh, listed on there, Richard Flavel. They gave, he's from Yale University, developed this humanized mice technology they gave $17 million, and actually it's even more than that. They ended up giving more uh, to fund his research. But uh, Richard Flavel, go to the next slide. Richard Flavel is the professor of immunology at Yale University Medical School. He's an expert in transgenic mice, receiving a five-year, uh, $17 million contract from Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. You saw that in the... Uh, the study there where it's listing him and how much money they gave to his research. Flavel also got funding from Big Pharma. Um, the company Regeneron Pharmaceuticals funded the research. Uh, that's the next guy. Take uh, next slide. 
So this is uh, Dr. Yankopoulos. He is the co-founder of Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, who also teamed up. So in this study, they teamed up with Regeneron, this scientist uh, from Regeneron, the uh, Yale University's Richard Flavel, and uh, they basically created a humanized mouse type of research so that they can uh, go back to the last one. I'll show you how this works. So they take the a mouse, they destroy its immune system either by genetic engineering or uh, by radiating it so that it can accept the organs of um, fetuses so that they don't reject them. And then what they do after they graft uh, either splices or whole organs of these children um, the organs that give the the mouse immunity or a child immunity, they then have a humanized mouse. And instead of testing human trials on this type of um, research, they will actually just use mice instead that have been given a humanized immune system uh, through this process. So George Yankopoulos, the founder and chief scientific officer of Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. Go to the next slide. Um, Yankopoulos graduated from Columbia University in 1985, and his goal proposition was to develop a humanized immune system mice, which could a humanized immune mice, which could generate human antibodies. He teamed up with Richard Flavel, professor of uh, immunology at Yale University, and uh, with dozens of millions from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, they were able to finally pull it off. Yankopoulos and Regeneration, uh, uh, Yankopoulos, excuse me, and Regeneron termed his scientific research of this human mouse chimera, he said, was the most valuable mouse ever created. And why was that? because they have generated billions of dollars in revenue from companies like Regeneron and other companies that led to the successful production of several FDA-approved drugs. So if you heard of Regeneron and COVID, you will have well understood that these, um, these drugs have been used to treat COVID and a number of other um what is the word they use? It is a monoclonal antibody. So of course, what they did not tell you is that they've used over hundreds of 16 to 23 week old unborn children that had been slaughtered in order to harvest their fresh but never frozen livers to create a monoclonal antibodies that Regeneron uses to make a mint off during the COVID-19 pandemic. Due to his research, these children just were sacrificed. They were slaughtered and sacrificed uh, to give you a good pharmaceutical drug so that they could obtain their livers. Quote, unquote, they said that the, liver, the fetal liver and grafted mice now support a development of monocytes, macrophages, and lymphocytes that now produce IL-15, which supports the development of NK cells, all necessary for the production of antibodies. Oh, so you thought uh, Bill Gates donates hundreds of millions of dollars in research and billions of dollars to abortion because he cares about women's empowerment. 
you thought that Bill Gates Sr., his dad, sat on the sat on the board of Planned Parenthood with Margaret Sanger because they believed in the advancement of ethnic minorities through women's reproductive health, right? Meanwhile, the Gates Foundation masquerades as world's greatest philanthropists, and they profit billions off of the death and dismemberment and exploitation of low-income ethnic minorities. So for big billionaire philanthropist tycoons like Bill Gates, uh, instead of um, instead of their MO being read as this savior of humanity and the wonderful things that he's done for humanity, uh, when you realize stuff like this happens, what the headlines really should read is something like this. Big Pharma Tycoon uses COVID drug to make billions from the bodies of black babies and their livers exploited from American ghettos. That sounds harsh, but it's the grim reality of what we're talking about. So other than livers, it's not just livers. Let me show you a whole host of research studies showing different organs and body parts of children. Here's uh, some research studies that show things calling for eyes. So you'll see... uh, studies of eyes there, fetal eyes. That's a picture of a baby's eye right there. Keep going. So these these are all the pictures of the eyes that they've harvested off of these babies. And harvested is the word that they use. Keep going. You'll see um, this is in human intestines, bone marrow. You can just keep scrolling through. I'll just re- keep reading them. Bone marrow, spleen, livers, thymuses, brains, You'll see that in a second. Brains of these babies, 22-week-old fetal brains, six-month-old almost babies, the brains being, how, how does that happen without a partial birth abortion? Testicles, even the reproductive organs, for heaven's sake, they're reproductive. They're taking the genitals of these babies um, and using them for their horrible research, small intestines, mesenteric lymph nodes. That right there, ladies and gentlemen, um, is the um, small intestines intestines of uh, 24-week-old children that they're grafting onto lab mice. And I know it's hard to believe, but by all means, look up. Uh, I will provide the links to all of these things, and it is a matter of public record. So uh, I've showed you a lot of different studies, but just realize that this does not even scratch the surface of the amount of baby body parts that are used every year for fetal trafficking research. Um, It is just the tip of the iceberg of the um, corpses that are exploited from these children by the medical and scientific scientific research community on a daily basis. Um, And, you know, I'm talking about all this stuff in a rather nonchalant way, because if I didn't, it would, I would never be able to get through this episode. When you really take in and stop and think about every single one of these babies that had a long future ahead of them, um, overwhelming, potential of each and one of these children 
that were made in the image of Almighty God that have been sacrificed, and I do mean sacrificed, on the altar of medical advancement. These babies have been sacrificed on the altar of moral progress in society. They've been sacrificed on the altar of a better future for these women. And every single one of these image bearers of God now is being exploited so you can make a better pharmaceutical drug. I've said it before, guys, but long ago, pagan deities have done similar things. This is really nothing new. Pagan deities used to sacrifice their babies and throw them on the molten arms of Moloch uh, in order to acquire from Moloch something that they wanted, food, economic prosperity, that their crops would grow, that they uh, you know, could, could have more children and, and, and be fertile. And we're doing the same. It's the same type of sacrifice. It's the same type of lore that's underlining this. But instead of our crops growing, what we want in, in exchange, in the, and when we sacrifice these babies, we want a better pharmaceutical drug, a cure for covid the fountain of pharmaceutical youth as these babies are used to create modalities and treatments that could be either injected or used to delay the process of human aging. Truly, abortion is in every single aspect of our society and it's ingrained into the fabric of this nation. And God help us as we expose it. Guys, this is not easy to see and hear, but it needs to be. It needs to be exposed. Uh, there's nothing that the forces of evil and darkness, and there's nothing that these uh, wicked politicians want more than to you to turn your head and say, I can't even think about this or look at it, because that's how this exists. It exists in the darkness because people are not willing to talk about it. And I can bet you, you probably never heard of all of this, nonetheless exposed it. So next part we have to um, discuss is how these baby body parts are acquired. But before I do, I want to show you some stuff that um, some friends of mine have exposed. So there's that middleman company. If you can put the next slides on there. So before we talk about how uh, these fetal body parts are acquired in the process of that, I want to show you some stuff that uh, some of my friends at Pro-Life San Francisco have exposed through FOIA requests. The FOIA is the Freedom of Information Act that makes it a federal law to be able to be open and transparent about the type of research that's happening, the type of public information that's going uh, into your tax dollars. So if you look at the graph here on the very bottom, there is the fetal uh, tissue procurement businesses. My friends uh, and were able to submit FOIA requests from a company down there, ABR, Advanced Bioscience Resources. So believe it or not, they acquired and we exposed at ABR outside of their office in Alameda. We exposed 
the uh, FOIA requests that we uh, acquired. And we not only acquired invoices for the baby organs between them and UCSF, but we actually acquired a fetal organ pricing sheet. Show, show those next slides. So this right here, guys, is a fetal organ pricing sheet. This is how much ABR chooses to, uh, the, the pricing sheet, um, how much they charge for each organ that they acquire and deliver from basically as a, as a taxi for in between Planned Parenthood or abortion clinics and research institutions. So they, they to be the Uber of baby organs, they charge these fee schedule for, as you see, fetal cadavers, um, whole fetal cadavers, uh, second and first trimester, fetal cadavers. They're seeing even other things like uh, uh, maternal cord, uh, cord blood and, and fetal umbilical cords and other aspects of um, organs that are listed by their gestational ages there. And then I'll show you the invoices and how much money is being transported back and forth. Next slide. These are the invoices of the organs. You can see there down there is a pancreas for up to $20,000 for a single pancreas. This is overwhelming evidence, prima facie evidence at least, of a violation of federal law. So keep scrolling through. I'll show you other things. These are fetal pancreases that we showed you a close-up of that. Keep going. Um, I believe these are fetal cadavers and how much money they're acquiring. So there you have it. We have showed you so far the research contracts themselves, government agencies and the NIH funded um, graphs. You showed you the FOIA quest, requests that some of my friends and I have exposed at ABR. Um, now I'm going to show you um, how these organs are actually acquired. So, so far we have talked about the NIH, how this is publicly funded. We've talked about um, the research institutions. I've showed you graphs and study after study of how these baby organs are being used to profit people, to um, fuel medical research and scientific advancement of America. I've showed you who is uh, behind the private funding of this type of research and grisly experimentation. I want to get into now helping you understand and exposing how these baby organs are acquired. In order to do that, though, I have to go into a little bit of how abortions are performed so you understand how these abortions are potentially altered in order to really harvest and exploit the organs from these children. So abortions are usually performed in four ways in this country, usually through chemicals or pills, through DNCs, which is a dilation and 
through DNE, which is a dilation and evacuation, and through labor induction. So the first two chemicals and DNCs don't really apply to fetal organ trafficking and harvesting much because of the fact that DNEs and DN, uh, DNEs and chemical abortion pills are usually performed within the first trimester. So in order to get these larger babies out that are perfect sizes for their organs to be utilized, you have to perform either a DNE or a labor induction. So... Rather than describe this in detail, I'm going to actually have abortionists describe the process of DNEs and D uh, and uh, labor inductions themselves, so you can greater understand how this process works. So this right here is a brand new video from Live Action, exposing their um, abortion training videos. So this is a DNE, a dilation and evacuation video. A DNE is generally performed between 14 and 22 weeks of pregnancy. Before a DNE abortion can be done, the cervix must be dilated slowly over one to two days with laminaria or a similar product. Laminaria is a type of seaweed that absorbs water and swells to several times its original diameter. When the woman undergoes the evacuation portion of the procedure, she lies on a table with her legs in stirrups. She may be given injections of local anesthetic in the cervix, IV conscious sedation, or general anesthesia. The abortionist uses a speculum to open the vagina and uses an instrument to stabilize the cervix. Metal dilators may be used to further open the cervix if needed. Once the cervix has been stretched open, a cannula attached to suction tubing is placed inside the uterus. The suction machine is then turned on and the amniotic fluid surrounding the fetus is suctioned out. The fetus is too large to fit through the cannula, so he or she must be removed in pieces with a clamp such as this sofa clamp. A sofa clamp is made of stainless steel and is about 13 inches long. At the tip, there are rows of teeth for grasping. The abortionist reaches into the uterus with the clamp and tries to grasp an arm or leg. Once the abortionist has a firm grip, she pulls forcefully in order to remove the limb. Piece by piece, the abortionist removes the arms and legs, followed by the head or the body, including the torso and pelvis, along with the intestines, the heart, and the lungs. The placenta is also removed. If the cervix has been overdilated, the body or even the entire fetus may be pulled out intact. Usually, the most difficult part of the procedure is extracting the fetus's head, which at 20 weeks is about the size of a large plum. The abortionist must open the clamp widely to grasp the head and then crush it so that it will fit through the cervix. The abortionist knows he has crushed the skull when a white substance, the fetus's brains, leaks out through the cervix. The abortionist then removes the compressed head. Any remaining limbs, organs, bone fragments, or pieces of placenta not removed with the forceps are removed by scraping the uterine lining with a large curette or by reinserting the suction cannula. The abortionist then reassembles the fetal parts to make sure that there is nothing left inside the uterus which could cause infection or bleeding. Once all the parts have been accounted for, the bleeding has been controlled, and all the instruments have been removed from the vagina, the abortion is considered complete. So I know that is incredibly difficult to watch. And 
honestly, if we saw a real video of what happens in that type of a procedure instead of a graphic um, animation, it would be even harder to watch. And unfortunately, um, there was a study that just came out called uh, Reconsidering Fetal Pain that was uh, released by, actually one of the researchers was a pro-choice individual, and their conclusion was is that a fetus can definitely feel pain regardless of what the previous research stated. They actually proved that fetus, uh, fetus in the womb can, can feel pain. A baby can feel pain at 12 weeks. So anything after 12 weeks. So every aspect of what we're talking about, this abortions of these babies are feeling every part of what is being done to these children. And uh, from 12 weeks on, they can um, feel pain just like you and I can. So in reference to how this applies to fetal organs, you saw as after dilation occurs, they begin to dismember the baby, but they do so inside the womb. So the question you might ask me is, AJ, they're dismembering the child before it comes out. How in the world are they going to get the organs, um, body parts of these babies intact because they're just going to destroy everything in macerated pieces? And for that question, I would refer you to uh, Deborah Nukatola, the Center Med- Senior Medical Director for Planned Parenthood Abortion Federation, who when questioned at dinner about her statements in an undercover video from David Delighton, pretending to be a fetal tissue procurement officer, she says this to David, which she later verified under oath, and you can find those under oath videos at the Center for Medical Progress's website. Uh, Deborah Nukatola says this, most people want livers, and for that reason, we'll do this uh, case under ultrasound guidance, so they'll know exactly where they're putting their forceps. She pauses to take a sip of her Merlot or red wine at dinner, where this um, video is being uh, undercover filmed. She says the rate-limiting step of the procedure is the calivarium, the head. The calivarium is basically the biggest part. Most of the other stuff, she says, can come out intact. It's very rare to have a patient that doesn't have enough dilation to evacuate all the other parts intact. So then you just kind of are cognizant of where you put your graspers. You intentionally go above and below the thorax. So, you know, we've been very good at getting heart, lung, livers because we know that. So I'm just not going to crush that part. I'm basically going to crush below. I'm going to crush above. And so I'm going to see that if I can get all that intact as she stabs her Caesar salad about to take a bite She continues, and with a calivarium, the head, in general, some people will actually try to change the presentation of the fetus so that it's not vertex or head first when it comes out. Because if it's vertex presentation, you never have enough dilation at the beginning of the case. 
unless you have a real huge amount of dilation to deliver an intact calivarium, an intact head. So if you start from a breech presentation, she says, feet first. If you start from a breech presentation, there's dilation that happens as the case goes on. And often the last step, you evacuate an intact calivarium at the end. And listen, she says, and often the last step, you can evacuate an intact head at the end. So if you are an educated pro-lifer and are listening to this, you might be throwing up your hands at the point, this point of the video and saying, AJ, wait, isn't she describing a partial birth abortion? Bingo. So uh, that's exactly what she's describing. Let me show you uh, if you can pull up the next graphic to show a, a partial birth abortion. A partial birth abortion is when you uh, intentionally turn the, the baby into a breech position so that uh, feet are first, and then you pull the baby out in a breech position up to the anatomical landmark of the head. You kill the baby, and then you... Um, deliver the rest out. This type of partial birth abortion procedure uh, occurred and was occurring frequently um, until Rick Santorum uh, and the federal government put an end to this practice um, and established a partial birth abortion ban that says, if you intend to do this, it is a federal crime and it is federally, uh, you're violating federal law. So bingo. Zero accountability, though, and uh, zero oversight when it comes to the sacred cow of women's reproductive health. And that's why Deborah Nukatola can say this in an open uh, interview in public, in a public place, really not worrying about what's going to come or the consequences of her actions and what she's exposing um, because she knows even if she gets caught, and just what happened that the big, uh, big government is just going to run a cover up and deny, lie, and cover it up. But when she's questioned, listen to this, when she's questioned about the partial birth abortion ban in the video later, she says this, the federal partial birth abortion, the federal abortion ban is a law and laws are up to interpretation. So if I can say on day one, I do not intend to do this, then what ultimately happens doesn't matter. So what she's doing as a matter of routine procedure to harvest these babies' organs is she is performing a partial birth abortion, what appears to be a partial birth abortion, and um she just checks a box, feigns compliance to the partial birth abortion ban, notates in her documentation that she didn't intend to do it, and the NIH can have all the baby organs to their heart's content. That is a DNA abortion. That is how a vast number of these organs are acquired, and that they can now get the type of organs that they want in whole intact fetuses, even up to whole heads that are totally unadulterated, so to speak, 
intact for these brain tissue studies of these children. That is big abortion for you, and that's happening in this country. So we talked a little bit about a DNA. That is the number one way most likely these abortions are happening. But another way that they can do it is a labor induction abortion. My name is Dr. Anthony Levitino. I'm a practicing obstetrician gynecologist, and I've performed over 1,200 abortions. Today, I'm going to describe a third trimester induced abortion which is performed at 25 weeks to term. At this point, the baby is almost fully developed and viable, meaning he or she could survive outside the womb if the mother were to go into labor prematurely. Because the baby is so large and developed, this procedure takes three or four days to complete. On day one, the abortionist uses a large needle to inject a drug called digoxin. Digoxin is generally used to treat heart problems but a high enough dosage of digoxin will cause fatal cardiac arrest. The abortionist inserts the needle with the digoxin through the women's abdomen or through her vagina and into the baby, targeting either the head, torso, or heart. The baby will feel it. Babies at this stage feel pain. When the needle pierces the baby's body and the digoxin takes effect, the life of the baby will end. The abortionist then inserts multiple sticks of seaweed called laminaria into the woman's cervix. They will slowly open up the cervix for delivery of a stillborn baby. While the woman waits for the laminaria to dilate her cervix, she carries her dead baby inside of her for two to three days. On day two, the abortionist replaces the laminaria and may perform a second ultrasound to ensure the baby is dead. If the child is still alive, he administers another lethal dose of digoxin. The woman then goes back to where she is staying while her cervix continues to dilate. If she goes into labor and is unable to make it to the clinic in time, she will give birth at home or in a hotel. In this case, she may be advised to deliver her baby into a bathroom toilet. The abortionist then comes to remove the baby and clean up. If she can make it to the clinic, she will do so during her severest contractions and deliver her dead son or daughter. If the baby does not come out whole, then the procedure becomes a DNE, a dilation and evacuation, and the abortionist uses clamps and forceps to dismember the baby piece by piece. Once the placenta and all the body parts have been removed, the abortion is complete. So there is absolutely no law, zero law that requires them to give a digoxin to a child, a, to euthanize a child before it comes out, before they do a labor induction abortion. Zero law, and in fact, most abortionists, probably up to half abortionists in the country, do not uh, provide digoxin before they induce labor, simply hoping that the process of delivery is traumatic enough to kill the baby before it comes out. And I will prove this by uh, both the abortionists who trains most of the women in the U.S., who will go unnamed at the moment, but you'll see in the video both her own testimony and uh, uh, Deborah Nucatola admitting this on the uh, Planned Parenthood's expose video from David Delighton. And so then we have some affiliates that use digoxin or some other fetocide, so that would basically limit it. So in general, you're probably going to be able to get to 20 weeks. It's going to be very unusual to get a patient that's about 20 weeks. Mm -hmm. at, I would say at the my parents in California. Yeah. In New York, it doesn't, it doesn't Not at all. Okay. 
there's like a culture war on Vita side. There's, there's people on the West Coast seem to really prefer Vita side. People on the East Coast seem to not like Vita uh -huh. side. Same thing. Same. People have their yeah. style. Eleanor Dry was telling me that um, that Eleanor they did not use it at UCSF though. Yes, that's not fine here. Eleanor okay. hates Miss Russell and De Johnson. That's Eleanor. Like I said, if you want. If you want no ditch, your options right now are like UCSF and Planned Parenthood of yeah. New York City, and that's it. And the reason it's Planned Parenthood of New York City is because they all train at, at UCSF. Oh. So it's like <laughs> the USASF school. Wow. Yeah. They're, to my knowledge, the only people that don't use ditch above 20 or 22. So is this true? Does UCSF admit to this? Well, let's let's see. Let's check the next video out. Excuse me, are you Dr. Dry? I am. I'm sorry, I'm running into everyone. So I spoke with Dr. Robinson earlier today. She said that I should talk to you. We are um, Biomax Procurement Services. We do fetal tissue collection. Oh, we're okay. located in Southern California. Um, we're very new. We just started like six months ago. And um, we're trying to connect with, um, with providers and with clinics that are doing, you know, into advanced second trimester gestation, but also, you know, without, without digging until later because digging destroys the material. <laughs> like it nukes the stem cells. <laughs> I'm getting my my cards out. Yes, but, you, um, said, you said you have a lot of what? A lot of UCSF. So I'm at uh -huh. UCSF. So we have a lot of. Um, I mean, we have so many researchers kind of tripping over each other in our sterile. Oh, so you're you're supplying a lot just to your local yeah, people I mean, in your right, institution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you so why would UCSF? In places like it, they said in the video there that all of New York doesn't use digoxin either because they're trained at UCSF. So why would the person, the head of UCSF, their abortion training center, uh, by the way, UCSF is the abortion training, late-term abortion training capital hub of the entire U.S., maybe even the world. People all over the world go there to train uh, how to uh, induce and perform DNAs and do second and third trimester abortions. Why would they withhold digoxin? Why would, if, if they know digoxin is, is the thing that kills these babies, why would they do that? Well, the answer is simple because if you kill the baby the day before, well, it's going to destroy and cause all of the tissue to become necrotic, you're going to deliver a dead baby, and then those organs are absolutely useless. So they withhold digoxin because they want the organs of these babies to go to medical research. So just realize one thing, and I'm, I know I'm getting off topic a little bit here, but places like Planned Parenthood, they're getting your money on the front end, just to exist from the federal government because we fund Planned Parenthood, they're getting the money from the abortions that they charge these women for, and then they're getting money on the back end from supplying the corpses of these children, some of which are even alive that we're kind of realizing, they are supplying the corpses and selling those off to t fetal tissue procurement um, businesses and research institutions like UCSF. 
So Planned Parenthood is making a mint. Plus, they are getting all your money and donations from people like Jeff Bezos and the average um, you know, leftist woman who wants to support them. But why would they not use digoxin? Well, because everybody knows that if you use digoxin and kill the child, it's going to nuke all of the stem cells, which is why David says in those videos that you don't want to dig because digging nukes the stem cells. So if you withhold digoxin, hoping that the process of delivery is enough to kill the baby, you are unbelievably wrong. And every single scientific study on the matter proves you're wrong. Here's one, if you can pull the next Here is a study, published journal on PubMed, that in the bottom is the it's in termed fetal survival in second trimester termination pregnancy without feticide. Feticide is that euthanized drug that they give digoxin. <clears throat> so what's the conclusion? After a termination of pregnancy without feticide between 20 and 24 weeks gestation. The live birth rate was 50.6. So what this is telling us, if you withhold digoxin, 50% of the time, the process of delivery of birth, when they induce these women chemically, giving uh, up to 400 milligrams of misoprostol to have contractions to, to deliver these children out, 50% of the time, these babies will come out alive. Even the Society for Family Planning admits this and says themselves, transit survival with misoprostol for labor induction abortion greater than 18 weeks ranges from zero to 50%. They all know it. They don't hide. So I, I wonder now, the question is, are these babies ever coming out alive? Is there evidence of this? Well, abortion is the most unregulated aspect of medical um, industry in the U.S. So unless you peel back the layer and, and have a video into what goes on there, you will never really know. A couple months ago, I uncovered a box of children outside of um, an abortion clinic that my friends found. Inside that box was five third trimester children and all with prima facie evidence of partial birth abortion and infanticide. So does this happen? I believe so. Every aspect of the evidence of these children points to that. But the problem is, when you, even when you catch them red-handed, they deny, 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 lie, and then the politicians and the ones in charge of prosecuting these types of crimes end up just covering it up for big abortion that they're in bed with. When you look back at that graph in the unholy trinity, you can see it's really indiscernible and impossible to tell 
where big pharma ends and the government begins, where the UCSF government institutions are starting and um, big abortion is beginning. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's all so wrapped up in one that who knows how much really goes on behind the scenes? Who knows how many, how much of these dollars are making it, uh, Planned Parenthood executives and everything are making it into the, the GOP, into the pockets of our politicians? Who knows? We may never know unless there's brave activists like David Delighton that expose this type of stuff. But we do have one video that I want to show you as we wrap up this long video um, exposing fetal organ trafficking. It's from an actual fetal tissue procurement technician named Holly O'Donnell. She worked for STEM Express, so it's on that list there. She actually talks about observing a beating heart. And according to the... NIH, the definition of a live birth is a baby whose heart is beating. Finally, the woman, she calmed down and the doctor went in to perform, perform the abortion. Takes a little while and I'm in the hallway. I see the jar come out, goes into the, the path lab. And Jessica, I can hear, is preparing it. Rinsing out the jar, rinsing out the linen wrapping the catches it, dumping it in the strainer, rinsing it off, putting water in the pie dish, and getting it ready for the doctor. So then I hear her call my name, hey Ollie, come over here. I want you to see something kind of cool. He's kind of neat. So I'm over here and this is the moment I see it, I'm just flabbergasted. This is the most gestated fetus and closest thing to a baby I've seen. And She's like, okay, I want to show you something. So she has one of her instruments and she just taps the heart and it starts beating. And I'm sitting here and I'm looking at this fetus and its heart is beating. And I don't know what to think. Is there still circulation in the heart once you isolate it? So, uh, you know, the, so there are, there are times uh, when uh, after the procedure is done that the heart actually is still beating. They induce fetal demise at about 20 weeks, 18 to 20 weeks, and so they uh -huh. inject digoxin into the fetus. Right, right. I was actually going to ask you about it because I want to make sure there's no digoxin no, on no, my No, 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 no. no. <laughs> Providers who use digoxin use it for one of two reasons. There is a group of people who just use it so that they have no risk of violating the federal abortion ban. If you induce the demise before you do the procedure, nobody's going to say you did a live whatever Whenever you're talking about fully intact fetuses in the context of fetal tissue procurement, those are situations where no feticide like a like digoxin or potassium chloride, no chemical like that can be used to kill the fetus beforehand because that poisons the organs and the tissues. Yeah. And so in that case, it's prima facie evidence of born alive infant cases. And she's like, you know why that's happening? And I knew why it was happening. It's because the electrical current was the nodes were still firing. And I don't know if that constitutes it's technically dead or it's alive. It had a face. It wasn't completely torn up. And its nose was very pronounced. It's, it had eyelids. And its mouth was pronounced. And then 
since the fetus was so, so intact. She said, okay, well, this is a really good fetus and it looks like we can procure a lot from it. Um, we're gonna procure brain. So, I just, the moment I hear something, that means we're gonna have to cut the head open. We're gonna have to cut the head open. So, it's like, okay, so what you do is you go through the face. I'm thinking, no, I don't wanna do this. And she takes the scissors and she makes a small incision right here and goes, I would say, to maybe a little bit through the mouth. And she's like, okay, can you go the rest of the way? And I'm like, yes. And I didn't want to do this. And so she gave me the scissors and told me that I have to cut down the middle of the face. And I can't even like describe like what that feels like. And I remember picking it up and finishing going through the rest of the face. And Jessica picking up the brain and putting it in the container with the media and parafilming it. And she left and she's like, okay, you can clean it up. And I'm just I'm just sitting there like what did I just do? And that was the moment I knew I couldn't work for the company anymore. So there you have it. There is one woman who's witnessed this happen, but man, how many others are like her that have said nothing? How many other babies, thousands, millions, late-term babies since 73 that have been born alive and, uh, witnessed by people who have said nothing because of this sacred protected right of women's health care. So a common argument that I hear from even people that are pro-life is, AJ, I, I get that this is gruesome. I get that it's hard to talk about, but why in the world would you be, would you be against using the bodies of dead people? Should, shouldn't we use their bodies to actually have something useful and, and make something of this, to, to have their bodies be used for something good and productive? Uh, if they're going to die, just why not use them to save other people? I hear this a lot, and I, I think it's worth addressing. So in closing, I just want to say a few things in reference to this. It's not like we roll up to a car accident scene, transport these people to the the hospital, and then they they're on they they die, and then we take the organs of these dead people to use for people on life support so that they can live a long, productive life. We are talking about an industry that is systematically and electively killing children who are otherwise on their way to a long and healthy, productive life. For the purpose of fueling this research in the research facilities and the salaries of people that are involved with this. So it'd be consistent with the analogy. I think it would be more apt to describe that it would be like the government funding people to cause wrecks to happen knowing that they can kill these people and then use the money from their organs to fund education and research. Second of, the, second, second of all, when you legislate in favor of an industry, you have to realize you, you're creating an incentive for that industry. These research contracts are written 
months, if not years in advance, calling for the continuance of babies to be killed. This is an outright financial incentive for the continuance of abortion with a government that should be neutral and totally nonpartisan. You're literally creating quotas for baby murder. You're creating quotas for organs that need to be filled. Those contracts are calling for research stipulations that result in literal quotas for baby organs based on their size and gestational ages. This creates a trickle-down pressure on abortion facilities to keep killing babies in order to fill those quotas. This creates pressure on abortion industries, abortion companies, to keep killing babies and coercing women to kill their babies so that they can fulfill these financial research quotas that they have already in advance. Finally, how are you going to end abortion? When you basically have allowed it to be continually ingrained into the systemic fabric of society, right now, I can tell you, There are millions, if not billions of dollars in reference to the continuous practice of abortion in this country. And there is no way the government wants that to end. They don't want this cash cow crop to dry up. So it is absolutely imperative that we not only view this episode, not, not, we all, not only that we talk about this, but that we demand our legislators and our people at our churches, our Bible studies, friends, colleagues, workplace, they need to see this, they need to expose this, and we need to call on every aspect of places of power to stop this madness. At one point in the future, we will look back at this grisly practice of taking the organs of our children, one third of our generation being slaughtered due to the violence of abortion. And we are going to say, how in the world did they do that? I invite you to be part of of the history books, part of the resistance, part of the people named in history as the people that shut this down, the Wilberforces, the Seth Krubers, the people that said, no, we will not be any longer a part of the cultural tide that is swifting through this nation that thinks it's okay to dismember and disembowel babies for the financial and pharmaceutical continuance and benefit for child sacrifice. I'm AJ Hurley. This has been your episode of Unaborted. And pray 
share this episode until all America is unaborted. Oh, <laughs> my